A reading from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Father, you are the creator of the universe and the giver of life and all good things. For that, you deserve our unending praise and adoration. You set the celestial bodies in motion and appointed their movements. And as the season starts to change from winter to spring, we see the new life starting to emerge and we recognize your sovereignty and your control over the universe. Father, we confess this week that we have tried to control the world around us in ways that have usurped your power and authority in our lives. We confess that our hearts were hardened toward you and towards others that are created to bear your image. Forgive us, Lord. Give us soft hearts towards each other. Give us ears to hear from your word. Give us endurance to joyfully run the race set before us. God, thank you for the blessing of being able to access health care when we need it. Thank you for the generosity shown through our brothers and sisters to meet our physical needs this week. We give thanks for the gift of your word, which encourages us through uncertainty and chaos. God, we pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Burkina that you would slow and even stop the spread of this virus in their country and among their churches. We pray that you would protect Pastor Marcel and his wife Pauline, their family, and all of the pastors in the midst of the sickness and chaos. Lord, we see that they are laboring to provide physical resources to their congregations. They're risking their lives, their own safety, to show your love to the people around them. We pray that we would remember them constantly in our prayers this week and in our financial giving as well. We thank you for all the kiddos that are church sponsors with Compassion International. We pray that the flow of resources to them would also continue. And Lord, we pray against the spirit of fear that our adversary is using all over the globe right now to discourage, divide, and set our hearts against the hope and the peace that we have in you. Holy Spirit, comfort those who are sick. Be with those who are feeling lonely and isolated right now. Remind them of the fellowship we have with you and with each other even though we are not physically present at this moment. Lord, we pray for abounding love for our neighbors, our roommates, our spouses, and our children, especially our children, Lord. As we sit at your feet to learn from your holy word, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your truth. May we not harden our hearts to you, Lord, but may we listen and respond. We thank you for the preparation that Hans has made for this teaching. We know that your spirit was at work in the midst of that preparation. May his teaching be used to edify us and to bring you glory. 
In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Peace and grace to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether you are a current or prospective member of Mission Fellowship, or you are just becoming acquainted with our church, or you are listening online from afar, we want to welcome you by the one Spirit of God into fellowship with us. I'm glad to be hearing from some of you that you are adapting to a new normal that actually isn't normal at all. This time we are in is a stressful and anxiety-producing, frustrating and sad situation. And we probably have it better than most in our corner of the world. It is in extremely stressful situations, like we find ourselves now, that our hearts are often revealed. In stress, we find out what our hearts are truly made of, as our reliance on our coping mechanisms becomes even more exaggerated. Stress and anxiety often initially bring out the best in people, but as that stress and anxiety persist, we find that it applies a pressure that brings out the true nature underneath. If I am normally pessimistic, my pessimism will show. If I am normally contrary, I will be more contrary or point fingers. Paranoia is amplified, anxiousness is amplified, political divides are amplified. Likewise, if I rely upon Christ in normal circumstances, I'm going to find myself praying more, relying upon the Lord more. If I rely upon my own control and strength, I will find myself trying to gain control where there is none, becoming over-controlling in what I do have control over to compensate for the chaos around me. Rather than being at peace in the knowledge that I have no control, I will spin myself up into the delusion that controlling anything is actually controlling the chaos. And this is the story all around us, isn't it? Take the current situation with toilet paper, of all things. Now we all chuckle to ourselves, but this is a real problem. As I talk to different people inside and outside our church, some are scrambling to still find it. And we chuckle because we all think to ourselves, really? Toilet paper? Now Lysol wipes or gloves or masks or medication hoarding, these things we understand, but toilet paper? Really? Now, the news feed has been full of various sociologists and psychologists trying to diagnose why people are making a run on toilet paper. And all they can come up with, as far as I've seen, is that it's either A, an attempt to control one of the most basic needs in order to comfort oneself that everything else will be okay, or B, we're simply acting as pack animals and the first person who hoarded toilet paper set off a chain reaction of others freaking out. Whatever it is, I think we can all look at the situation around us and scream that the issue is not the toilet paper. It's not about the toilet paper. It's about the state of the human heart. The heart full of fear and distrust and contempt at our fellow man, that is what is behind the issue of hoarding toilet paper. But what is everyone focused on? Not the heart, the toilet paper. Now, Tyler taught us Jesus's words a few weeks ago that it's not what goes into a person, but what comes out of their heart that makes them unclean. Right now, what is coming out of many people's hearts is fear, anger, blame, selfishness, contrariness, and so many other fleshly responses. The entire world is being forced to realize what we as Christians have known for centuries, that we are not in control, and we are all, at some point, going to die and have to face our maker and judge. These were the truth before coronavirus, and these are the truth now that many people are having to face. It's just a different timeline. But because many are being forced to face these truths, these fleshly responses pour out of hearts because the sinfulness inside is not able to be contained when under the stress and anxiety we all feel and the reckoning we are facing. Situations like this bring conviction that we have been deluding ourselves into thinking that we submit in trust of a king, when in reality that king is just ourselves, not Christ. And that's where our negative responses come from. The fact that our control is no longer working. It's not about the toilet paper. It's about our hearts. Now I wanted to title the teaching that same phrase this morning, but even in the midst of a pandemic, we need to maintain some sense of reverence and decorum. And so our text this morning gives us a better title. For in our text today, Mark takes us through a series of small narratives that connect into one main theme. He uses the topic of bread as the connector. And by the end of the section we will look at today, we will all be able to say to the disciples and ourselves, it's not about the bread. It's about the state of your heart. 
So that's our title today. If you're taking notes, you can write down, it's not about the bread, it's about your heart. Let's read the first portion of our text today in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Mark 8, 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand The first thing we need to look into here is the fact that this seems so similar to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 just two chapters earlier. What we will find is that Mark is providing, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, this is the first point, a purposefully obvious comparison. A purposefully obvious comparison. That's the first major point and section of my teaching this morning. Mark is providing a purposefully obvious comparison. Here in Mark 8 and in Matthew 15, there is a story of Jesus feeding 4,000, when in both Gospels, just two chapters earlier, there is a story of Jesus feeding 5,000. The stories are pretty much the same, except for the fact that they have different numerology or numbers used to contrast them. Both express the compassion and care of Jesus towards the people following him. Both show the people satisfied at the provision of Christ. Now, so much work has been done in commentaries to figure out why the authors would use these two stories so similar to one another to communicate something. And since the early church fathers, much use of what has been called allegory or symbolism has been used. The predominant idea is that 5,000 pictures the Jews and the 4,000 pictures the Gentiles saved by God, provided for by God. Now, this could definitely be the case. I don't love arguing with church fathers. And that would be a cool picture that Jesus is able to feed both the Jew and the Gentile. But I think to give into that symbolic view too quickly is the primary communication is to miss a couple of things. First, Mark's literary style is not marked by a whole lot of symbolism. In fact, his style is marked by using the flow and sandwiching together of stories to speak of specific points or ideas. And all of them revolve around the core question of who do you think Jesus is? Second, the base use of these numbers symbolically does not make a lot of sense when compared to reality or even other portions of scripture. In reality, the number of ethnic Jews in the kingdom of God, by simple population statistics, will most likely be smaller than the number of ethnic Gentiles. And this is seen in places like Revelation. There in chapter 7 of Revelation, John uses symbolic numerology, and yet even within that symbolism, he compares a smaller remnant of Jews— symbolized by the number 144,000, with the innumerable Gentiles in chapter 7, verse 9, which he called a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. So it doesn't make sense that Mark would say the Jews were symbolized by 5,000 
and the Gentiles by 4,000. So then what is the point of having these two very similar stories so close together? Well, remember what we learned last week, that the disciples were having trouble hearing and understanding the truth of God's word as spoken through Jesus. He sarcastically used a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman with a possessed daughter, to humble the Jewish male disciples. It left us asking the question of if we even can hear God in this time. Our text today doubles down on that question and goes a bit further to ask if we can't hear and understand God's word and what God might be calling us to, then maybe we should examine our own dullness, our own hardness of heart. Mark is placing the duplicate story here to point out the dullness of the disciples, the lack of the ability to hear and see and understand something so obviously clear. Remember that Mark was written and intended to be read out loud in one sitting to a listening audience. We are merely stepping through it at a slower pace and in an exegetical fashion because we are so far removed from its historical and cultural context. But for the original audience, they would have heard the stories of the feeding of the 5,000, and then shortly thereafter, the feeding of the 4,000, and thought, like you and I, wait, what? How are the disciples that slow, that dull, and blind? Remember, though, that most likely these two events were a good time period apart, not just the minute or two apart that it takes us to read between them. Think about your own life as I do mine. How many times has the Lord provided for me in a miraculous way, and then a year later, or maybe even months or weeks or maybe even days later, I am faced again with a stress and I doubt the Lord's provision and goodness. We are no different than these disciples. But that is the point. The author is painting a backdrop in which we recognize quite blatantly the ignorant and obtuse nature of the disciples. He does this as a background because he's about to compare and contrast the disciples and the Pharisees and show that there is not much difference. They are both blind, deaf, and misunderstanding of Jesus in the spiritual plane. And this makes a ton of sense too because of how it then flows into the rest of the text, which we will look at in a moment. But all of this is leading to the hinge between the two main sections of Mark that we will see next week in Mark 8.29, where Peter professes Jesus as the Christ. Up until this point, the disciples have continually asked the question, who is this guy? Where does he get his power? And until this point, they have seemed just like the Pharisees and the Herodians. Let's read again from the next section as the Pharisees come to Jesus there in Mark 8.11-13. We'll review it again. Verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Here we see that Mark moves into comparing the hearts of the two groups. And that is our next major point in the teaching. We see that Mark is, and you can write this down if you'd like, Comparing and contrasting the hearts of the Pharisees and the disciples. That's point number two. Comparing and contrasting the hearts of the Pharisees and the disciples. When we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, we compared it to the gospel of John's narration of the same story. And it's in John 6 that we see Jesus confronted by a crowd and asked what signs he does to prove his authority. Let's go there now and look at it again in John 6. 25 through 41. John 6, 25 through 41. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You and I would say, look back at the 5,000. Well, they continue, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Here we see the same ignorance, the same misunderstanding, and we rightly want to yell out to them, hey guys, it's not about the bread. It's about your hearts towards Jesus as Christ and King. And this is by design. It's supposed to make the listener frustrated and exasperated. We're to ask ourselves, how can they not see it? Well, Mark is using the same tactic. But Mark, unlike John, does not speak in such symbolism, but instead uses simple narrative. Go back there with me to Mark 8.11. The Pharisees are arguing with Jesus, asking him to show them a sign of his messianic authority. Now notice two things with me. First, Jesus sighs deeply. It's as if Mark is using Jesus to empathize with the exasperation of the listening audience. Just as we sigh and think, oh my goodness, and place our palm on our forehead, Jesus sighs as well. But then, secondly, there is this sense of sarcasm. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. If you are listening closely, you turn your head in bewilderment and question, wait, didn't Jesus just give yet another sign? He provided bread to the people, for goodness sakes. How can he say that he will do no sign? He's been doing signs all along. This doesn't make sense. But if you remember back from the teaching on the feeding of the 5,000, The specific sign that the rabbis and the Pharisees were looking for was that another Moses, the final prophet prophesied by Moses, would be able to provide bread from heaven as Moses did in the desert through manna. So not only is Mark painting the Pharisees as never satisfied, he's also painting them as incredibly dense and blind, unable to see or understand that Jesus is the one they have been looking for. It's as if Mark uses this interchange to paint the Pharisees as the continuation of hard-hearted Israel, unable to see God's provision, faithfulness, and goodness, even when it's right in front of their eyes. It reminds me of scriptures like in Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. In Numbers 14, verses 11 and 12, the Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and then disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, obviously, he recants on that as Moses calls out to him. But Jesus' words here of truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation is kind of an odd grammatical construction. It implies that it is an emphatic vow or curse. It's like when someone says, may God strike me down if I do such and such. Christ here is saying, I swear that in no way, shape, or form will another sign be given. He is slamming their mentality of kind of a miracle to order, that they can request it and he'll do it, because they're testing him. But again, the structure of Mark causes the listener to pause and ask, why have the other miracles not been good enough for the Pharisees? The simple answer is that the miracles and signs performed by Jesus thus far do not meet their agenda. The specific sign they're asking for here in Mark is an apocalyptic sign that brings with it Israel's final exodus from the hands of Rome. In other words, when are you going to get busy, Jesus, and solve our problems? Have you ever noticed this in yourself? No matter how many times God acts in a way that is miraculous in our lives, we still come back to him and test him, question him. Because in the immediate situation right now, We want Jesus to do things a certain way, and he's just not abiding by our wishes. doesn't matter what he's done in the past. We want him to act the way we want him to right now. Oh, what a betrayal of our hearts, asking for Christ's submission to our will, not our hearts surrendering to him. We leave this small text saying to ourselves, Oh, foolish Pharisees, how can you not see? 
But Mark is luring us into this self-congratulating arrogance, thinking that those who can't see Christ as King, Messiah, and God incarnate are just rebellious or dumb. Mark is intentionally setting the listener up for the fall. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Because then he turns our eyes to the disciples, those that are just like us. Let's take a look again at Mark chapter 8, and we'll see how he paints the disciples. In Mark 8, 14, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I can just see them almost dismissing Jesus here. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And the inference here is that it's not actually just congenial discussion, but it's actually debate and argument. He says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did they take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Mark has taken us through this linear thread using the subject of bread. Jesus has performed two massive miracles providing bread for those that followed him. He even was willing to give metaphorical crumbs of bread off his own table to the lowly Syrophoenician woman. But none of the miracles were enough for the Pharisees to understand that Jesus is the Messiah for whom they are looking. Are the disciples any less hard-hearted and obtuse? No, they're not. In this odd, seemingly unrelated statement, the disciples are arguing about who forgot to bring more bread. And Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. They keep arguing, and Jesus jumps in and effectively says to them, Hey guys, it's not about the bread. Look at verses 19 through 20 again. He recounts the two stories and again says, Guys, do you not remember that I've provided for crowds of thousands and they've all been satisfied? Why are you arguing over bread when I'm here with you? Don't you trust me? Don't you understand? In fact, look at verse 18 and see how he speaks to them. He says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? This is language of condemnation and death that is eerily similar to the language God gave to Isaiah to go and preach God's word so that it would progressively result in hardened hearts against him. This is from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Jesus is saying to the disciples that they are as dull and hard-hearted as the Pharisees. The Syrophoenician woman could hear in faith. But in contrast, these disciples are hard-hearted fools, just like you and I can be. And this is why Jesus calls them to be cautious of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. He uses the same motif of bread to caution them from having the same disbelief and hardened hearts that they did, hardened to an understanding of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming and demonstrating. Now he uses the idea of yeast because yeast in those days required one to take a piece of the previous week's dough and add juices to it so it would ferment but it could easily become tainted and infect the next batch of bread and in fact become poisonous. And this is its meaning here. It's meant to symbolize a small but increasing corruption that would spoil their faith. As an antidote, notice that Jesus recounts the previous works he had performed and calls them to remember. Remember what he has done. To not remember what Christ has done is to allow the yeast of unbelief to create hardness of hearts towards God. But not only is he calling them to remember his works within the gospel, but to remember who he is, the Exodus God incarnate, come in the flesh. We have been looking at this in depth through the last few chapters of Mark. And Jesus was saying, remember who I am. Remember my character. Do you not understand? Do you not remember? Jesus is the embodiment of the Exodus God who consistently provided for Israel. Jesus will always provide for his disciples. This is the idea where our two readings today come from. 
The first that Kelly read us in Psalm 95 contrasts the attitude that we are to have. Come, let us worship the Lord uh, with this contrasted idea of the hardened hearts of the people and God's response to them in Psalm 95, 8 through 11. Why don't you turn there with me and take a look at Psalm 95. It starts out, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. Come, let us worship, it says in verse 6, and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. And then he continues, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Verse 11, therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Exodus God always takes care of his people and to believe otherwise is to begin hardening your heart towards him and his character. This is always a result of a heart stance in which we are asking God to be submitted to our rule rather than submitting to his rule. You see, if we're submitted to his rule, it's a lot easier to be content in the midst of whatever happens. And so the New Testament writer of Hebrews plays off this same idea and begs the church with the statement from Hebrews that Kara read to us earlier in the first portion. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, if you want to turn there. I'm going to read through uh, chapter 4, verse 2. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This is verse 12. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is why we have hard conversations with one another. This is why we call each other to repent. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It didn't matter if they called themselves Israelites. If they did not unite in faith with those who believed and did not similarly trust in the rest of God, they would not enter his rest. You see, Christians are those who unite together in faith to trust the goodness of the living God. The Pharisees and the disciples have nothing in common except a refusal to remember God's goodness and to trust God in spite of the evidence. And this still applies to us. We need to trust God in spite of the evidence. This is not a foolishness to flout the requests of government officials and doctors in the midst of coronavirus, like we see on the news of many irresponsible churches and pastors. This is not a foolish faith. It is a faith based on the reality that God is good. God is faithful, and he will provide for his people, even if that is simply in the resurrection after death. There is no need to lose trust in him or his plan, no matter our circumstances. So what is the antidote again? The antidote to a hardened heart? It's to remember. I think Christ would call us to the same remembrance he called his disciples to. Do you not remember? Dear brothers and sisters, dear listener, do you not remember who God is? Do you not remember the garden that God provided peace out of chaos and provision out of the wilderness? Do you not remember the exodus that God saved his people from an oppressive kingdom and enslavement to provide for them a land full of provision. And even when they rebelled and wandered, Jesus provided a way for them to eventually make it to their destination. And dear friend, do you not remember the gospel 
that the creator and the Exodus God saw the state of mankind, that we want to rebel against God's authority and choose for ourselves what is good and evil. And yet, in spite of that, he sent his son, the incarnate nature of himself, to die upon the cross of Calvary as a substitutionary sacrifice in your place and mine, to take on the cost for your sin and mine, so that we might be justified and seen as holy in the sight of the Father. Do you not remember? Do you not remember that he then rose in victory, proving that our sins were forgiven and sin and death has no hold on us? Do you not remember? Do you not remember that he appeared to faithful witnesses, proving his resurrection, and then after 40 days, he ascended into heaven to be enthroned as king as he poured out his spirit into the heart of his people so that we might know him and honor him as God, king, and savior. Dear friend, do you not remember? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has purchased us eternal life, what can this world do to us? If God has provided eternal life for us, what want do we have? You see, it's not about the bread. It's about trusting in Jesus as God's Messiah, come to provide for us a way to eternal life. If God can do all this, he can take care of any other situation. Maybe not in the way our own personal sovereignty dictates, but definitely in the way his sovereign eternal plan dictates. So how do we keep our hearts from becoming hardened by the same leaven of distrust and lack of understanding? Well, that's the third point that I want to finish with today. The third point is Jesus calls us to examine our hearts. Jesus calls us to examine our hearts. Jesus' question of do you not yet understand reveals the fact that they do not in fact understand and they need God's help in removing their blindness so that they might see that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a perfect setup of the next two sections in chapter 8 that we will look at next week. The psalmist that wrote Psalm 139 knew this need that we're talking about. And that is why he said in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, and I love the NIV translation here, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need God's help in this time to search our hearts and to help us to understand what leaven exists within them. Twice in the New Testament, Paul told the church at both Corinth and Galatia, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we, as a church and as individuals, need to look deep in our hearts as evidenced by our own lives, our own attitudes, our own relationships, and see what leaven there is that needs to be removed. We need to ask the question of if we understand that God is good and trustworthy and worthy of our reliance and our faithfulness. Times like these have a tendency to make us sit in isolation, solitude, and silence. And in that time, we tend to not like what we see because these fleshly things come up out of our hearts. And we recognize in these moments how much work still needs to be done on our hearts. So let's think about this idea practically in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of being stuck in our homes, faced with the reality of what is deep in our hearts. We can't escape. We can't run away and keep ourselves busy, but we're stuck often in these moments, recognizing all the work that needs to be done on our hearts. So what are some of the kinds of leaven that are manifesting because of a lack of trust in God? a lack of reliance upon God and his people. Let me give you a few that I've noticed as I've read the news and even as I've just watched our society from a distance. The first is greed. Hoarding is happening. Why? 
Already people are throwing out the food they bought and wanting to return the toilet paper rolls because they realize that if everyone just takes what they need, we'll all be fine. Instead of this, Christ followers should be generous with what we have. Learn to live with less. Be content. And stop living with an attitude that we are entitled to what we want. We need to pray for those who are without. A great antidote to greed is to pray for our brothers and sisters in Burkina who are truly in dire straits right now. A second kind of leaven is envy and blame. Everywhere we look, we see people pointing fingers at each other, blaming each other for this disease, amplifying political rhetoric that this is because of one party or another, pointing the finger and saying this person is not doing enough or that group is not doing enough, raising ourselves above one another because we deserve more or our situation is worse. Instead of this, Christ followers should pray in thanksgiving, live in contentment, Recognize we are responsible for how we act and speak, not for anyone or anything else. We should love one another and see where we can help. Be agreeable, not contemptuous or contrary. We are all in this together, and division only feeds the fire of fear and brokenness. A third leaven is rebellion. Paranoia is running rampant against government leaders against police officers, and I'm sure in homes against parents. People are reading into everything that leadership says and does, assuming good intent has flown out the window. As Christ followers, we should model submission to the government's authority. We should pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not. It's dawned on me a lot this week that everyone from our president to our governor to our mayor They all have thankless jobs, and we should submit to our leaders and to our doctors rather than press our individual constitutional rights right now. Guys, it's not about the politics. It's about our hearts. More so now than ever, people are looking to those of us that proclaim Christ to see what our faith is really about. Another leaven is division. This is not time for us to take part in any us versus them mentality. We are all facing the same death, the same end. But what is our eternal perspective? Do we follow the one that comes to cause division and to kill, steal, and destroy? Or do we follow the one who brings unity and shalom? In our homes, our marriages, with our roommates, our neighbors, our children, with our church family, are you bringing division or are you bringing unity? Each of these is manifesting in simple things like hoarding of toilet paper or food, arguments with one another over trivial things, or politics. It's showing itself in marital discord and parental over-control. But none of these are the actual issue. They merely expose the true disease of our hearts. It's not about the bread. It's about our heart. At the core of all of these is the same fleshly fear, lack of understanding, selfishness, desire for control, and disbelief that characterize the Pharisees and the disciples. Rather than trust in the character of God and his record of loving provision, the disciples freaked out about the bread. But it wasn't about the bread. It was about their hearts. It was about their ability to see the truth of who Jesus was and is, that he is a loving, good God who wants what is best for his people. In times like these, it is so easy to try and take control into our own hands, to blame God and act in distrust of his sovereignty, to operate in paranoia, anxiety, and fear like the disciples. In times like these, it is so easy to demand proof of God's goodness Like the Pharisees, we demanded of him that he fix our individual situation right now. But as one commentator states, faith that depends on proof is not faith. It's only veiled doubt. As with every atrocity, God has allowed the enemy, the prince of this world, to have things his way for a short time in incredible chaos and destruction. 
so that humanity might come to the end of ourselves and realize that we are creatures, not the creator. We are subjects, not the king. We are mortal, not the immortal God. We are those that die. We're not the giver of life everlasting. And if we as believers can see these truths, turn back to God in humble repentance and operate within them in the way we live, speak, and interact with one another, perhaps there is a chance for our witness to spread during this pandemic and after so that others might be drawn to Christ. This week, as you go about your business, I have three points of application for you. First, go back through that list of leaven that is prominent right now. And in humble submission, ask Christ and maybe even those with whom you have contact if there is any leaven in you that needs to be removed. Is there any hardness of heart that needs to be softened? Is there any doubt of God's goodness that needs to have an antidote applied to it of remembering how good God is? And then take these things to the Lord in repentance. So first, check your heart, examine it, and allow the Lord room to move and convict in it. The second piece of application is I want to beg you to pray for the hardened hearts of our neighbors to be softened as they are brought to the end of themselves so they might hear the gospel from those of us ready to speak it. I fear that many of us as Christians are so worried about our own situation or have our eyes so focused on the news that we are missing the fact that this, in one sense, is doing an amazing work. COVID-19 is bringing self-sufficient humans to the end of themselves so they have to look elsewhere for comfort and for peace. This is a time when people are open to hear about God, about his word, and about his salvation. And if not now, then in a few weeks when COVID-19 hits its peak in the United States, and in a few months as it continues and people still get sick here and there, hopefully we pray that it will be largely removed by then, but there will still be the after effects. That is the time that we as Christians need to remind people of the goodness of God and the good news that he has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. Pray for the hardened hearts of our neighbors to be softened. And third, I want to call each of us to admit this week that we are nothing but flesh, nothing but dust in the Father's hand. I want to call us to admit that we are mortal. We're not immortal. I want us to admit that we have no control and that we must rely on the goodness of God and his eternal plan and sovereignty. To do this, I want to call our church and those of you listening to something we haven't done in a long time. I want to call you to fast for one 24-hour period this week. Pick any day you want this week between now and next Sunday. One day of fasting where you restrain yourself from eating to admit our need for God's grace and provision. Now, if you are unsure if you can do so physically to maintain your health, please don't feel obligated. You get a pass. But if you are physically able to fast this week, I want to call you to join me in fasting for one day. And throughout the day that you are fasting, I want to call you to prayer for our government leaders, for our healthcare workers, for foster parents, for those that are sick, for one another within the church and especially for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso, including Marcel and Pauline. As you have moments of hunger and thought about food during that 24-hour period, pause and pray. At the end of the day, it's not about all the chaos that surrounds us. It's about mankind's relationship to its creator and the state of our individual hearts towards him. It's not about the bread. It's about our hearts. May the Lord give us all ears to hear and hearts that are surrendered into his very gracious and compassionate hands. Mission Fellowship, I love you all deeply, miss you all greatly, long for the moment we can sing worship to our King together. 
May the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and from a distance, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all this week. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you in full confidence, with faith in your goodness and steadfast love. And so today, we ask you to search our hearts and reveal to us where we lack faith. Reveal where we have placed improper expectations on others or on the church, where we should be trusting you and letting go of fear. We want to image you the way Christ does, with compassion and steadfast faith. He showed us the life lived with no fear, the life lived with full trust in your ability to save. Lord, use this time to remind us of our fragility. Let the truth of the weakness of our flesh sink in deep so we can be disciples who are concerned with the bread of life. Like the hymn, let the things of this world fade away as your glory and grace are revealed to us through your word. Let the greatness of your love sustain us as we feel the absence of lesser comforts. Lord, give us compassion for our neighbor the neighbor in our homes, in our communities, and in our church. Help us to be generous with what we have and to glorify you in our sharing, as all things are yours and at your disposal. Jesus, when your calling took you to the very end of your life, you trusted. In the face of the chaos and uncertainty of the world, your unwavering faith in the Father gives us so much hope. And as we and the world around us are facing chaos and uncertainty, help us to call to mind the hope we have in you, the only hope worth having. Comfort us. We know you have the same compassion for us as you did the crowds in Mark's gospel. We know you will shepherd us through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, my family and I miss gathering with you, but we are thankful for all of you and your faithfulness during this time knowing that you all are seeking him and aligning your heart with his brings us peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you in his grace. May he turn his face to you and give you peace. Wherever you are, you are in his love, the grace of his son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.